Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. All of us remember the Cold War, the 46-year-long struggle between the Soviet Union on one side and the Western world on the other. When the Soviet finally dissolved in 1991, there was a global sigh of relief. Here in America especially, we relaxed in relief from decades-long fear and tension. From the way things looked in 1991 and considering America's unchallenged world supremacy, it appeared that our future in international relations was bright and that long hoped for continuing peace was at hand. But along with other unexpected happenings, the price of oil has risen to heights unimagined back in 1991. Along with close to $100 per barrel prices has appeared a whole new Russia, strengthened and emboldened by its huge production and reserves of oil. And then there's Russia's inscrutable president, Vladimir Putin, soon to leave office but possibly be appointed prime minister. What's he like? What does it mean for the U.S.? Should we worry? What should we do? With us here today to address those and other questions is one of the country's top experts on Russia, Dr. Andrew Cutchins, the past director of the Carnegie Moscow Center and presently director of the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. He has provided briefings on Russian affairs for the U.S. Congress, State Department, CIA, National Security Agency, and large multinational corporations. Since earning his Ph.D. in international relations from, from Johns Hopkins, he has managed research studies on Russia-Soviet foreign policy at Stanford and University of California, Berkeley. He has been author or co-author of four books on Russia, along with numerous editorials in the Washington Post, <coughs> Asian Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, and others. Please help me welcome Dr. Andrew Cutchins. Thanks, Mel, for that very, very generous uh, introduction. Um, it's a real pleasure for me to be here in Dallas, and uh, thanks very much to the American Jewish Committee, Committee and the World Affairs Council of Dallas. I need to let you know that I've never been in Dallas before. My principal experience with Dallas was, of course, like many Americans, rooting against the Cowboys. <laughs> and for me, it was a particularly seminal experience in my life because I grew up in San Francisco. For the 1970s, we were getting our butts kicked by you. We had a good run on you in the 80s. Uh, the 90s were a little mixed, pretty much went your way. Right now, I think the Super Bowl count is still 5-4 to four in my favor. <laughs> At any rate, 5-5? Five, five? I stand corrected. Um, anyway, I'm glad to kind of start rounding out and broadening my Dallas experience today. Now, recall six and a half years ago in Slovenia, it was the President Bush looked into Vladimir Putin's soul. And, of course, he got a lot of criticism for that. So it's with some trepidation today that I will try to get inside Vladimir Putin's head. 
and explain Putin's view of Russia and its future as I see it. Now, this talk I'm going to give today is a, it's a brand new talk, so I'm going to test drive it on you. I hope we don't have a, an accident. It's based on a, uh, an article I've written with a friend of mine, an economist at the Brookings Institution, Cliff Gaddy. And we came up with the idea for this article when we were flying down to Sochi on September 14th, 2007, to meet with Vladimir Putin uh, as part of the Valdai Discussion Club. It's a group of, uh, it's basically a Kremlin propaganda effort. They bring together a group of so-called experts and journalists, mostly from the West, meet with Russian political elites, and every year it's culminated with a meeting with Vladimir Putin. And uh, so this is kind of where that's, that's coming from. It's going to appear in the Washington Quarterly in a couple of weeks. Uh, well, there'll also be an article by my colleague at CSIS, distinguished colleague, Zbigniew Brzezinski. And I think his take on Russia is a little bit different from mine. <coughs> Although, like he, I am Polish. <coughs> so there's not a whole lot of uncertainty about the Russian presidential elections that are going to take place on March 2nd. It's a rather different situation than what we face here in our current elections. In fact, the contrast could not be starker. But still, there are a lot of things that remain quite unclear about Russia's future. Now, of course, in the eyes of most of the outside world and those in Europe and here in the States especially, the Russian electoral process has failed to measure up to benchmarks of democracy and free choice of policies and personalities. Rather, what this process is pretty much all about is legitimizing the notion of entrusting the country's future to something called Putin's plan, thus ensuring what the Russians call continuity of policy. <coughs> Beyond the scheduled end of Vladimir Putin's tenure as president of the Russian Federation in May of this year. So what exactly is Putin's plan? Where does it come from? What are its goals? What are its implications for Russia's domestic and foreign policy? That's what I'd like to spend about 25 minutes or so talking with you about today. So this phrase, Putin's plan, it was introduced into the political vocabulary by the chairman of the United Russia Party, Boris Grizlov, in a speech in May of last year. Now, although the, although the term was new, Grizlov emphasized that the concept was not he said, in effect, it's been in, it's been in effect since 2000. Yet when pressed more recently to specify exactly what it is, Grizlov admits that it does not exist as a defined statement. Quote, Putin's plan is the political course of the current president. Putin is the leader in charge of national strategy, and this is why we have dubbed his ideas Putin's plan. So Putin's plans, in other words, is whatever Vladimir thinks and wants and the Russian public seems to understand this. In October 2007, a poll reported that the overwhelming majority of Russians could not describe Putin's plan or even heard of it, yet an equally large majority were nevertheless confident that Putin had one. <laughs> Furthermore, as the results of the December parliamentary election showed, Russians want the country to be guided by that strategy whatever it is. <laughs> now, Putin's chosen successor in the office of president, Dmitry Medvedev, clearly recognizes the inseparability of Putin's plan from the person of Putin himself. So after accepting the endorsement of the United Russia Party, and repeatedly thereafter, Medvedev has assured the Russians that he would faithfully 
continue Putin's strategic course, and he would need to do that in close cooperation with the author of that strategy. Now, the cloudiness of Grislov's and Medvedev's references to Putin's plan should make it clear that although talk of the plan with a capital P might evoke memories of Russia's Soviet history, Putin's plan is very different. In the Soviet Union, the famous five-year plans became the foremost symbol and feature of society as a whole. Those plans were highly precise, very comprehensive. Uh, <clears throat> the Soviet Union was, after all, a centrally planned economy, and the plans did very much control everything. Now, Putin's concept of planning is, some, is nothing like that, and it has very different roots. Its roots are not in Marxism-Leninism, but rather in Western business theory, via a book with which he most likely became acquainted with during his KGB career. Now, the KGB, in which Putin trained and served under Mr. Andropov back in the 70s and 80s, was at the forefront of the, of the search for an answer to the Soviet economic dilemma in the post-Stalin era, namely how to increase efficiency without losing control. Guess what? They never quite came up with the right answer. Now, part of that effort involved canvassing Western literature on theories of planning as applied to large corporations and other organizations. In the late 1970s and early 80s, a handful of the most relevant foreign texts were translated into Russia into very limited editions. And one of those works, Strategic Planning and Policy, by William R. King and David Cleland of the University of Pittsburgh, was published in 1978 and was translated into Russia by the KGB in 1982, turned out to be the one that was later used extensively by Putin. Well, used extensively is kind of a euphemism. In Mr. Putin's dissertation, he plagiarized directly about 30 pages of the King and Cleland book. Now, when my colleague Cliff Gaddy uh, brought out the story that Putin had plagiarized his dissertation, you know, that was what a lot of people kind of focused on. But I think, actually, we believe that the more interesting thing is not that he plagiarized his dissertation. There are a lot of people that do that, especially in Russia. Uh, but that what did he plagiarize? That's the key thing, I think. <clears throat> so let me tell you a little bit about his dissertation and what he plagiarized. So his dissertation was entitled Strategic Planning of the Reproduction of the Resource Base of a Region. Now, that would be a bestseller on Amazon.com, huh? <laughs> and it later received attention because of the remarkable prescience that Putin displayed in choosing the topic of natural resources and their role in Russia's economy at a time before he was even considered for a post in the national government. He published this dissertation uh, back in 1997. Um, equally important was that he had based his work on the specific notion of strategic planning defined by King and Cleland, namely planning for an unpredictable, changing environment. Now, in retrospect, the particular appeal of King and Cleland text to an enlightened segment of the Soviet elite is fairly clear. In the early 1980s, the Soviet Union had been shocked by an unexpected collapse of world oil prices. I think you guys heard about that here in Texas. <laughs> the resulting changes in the world economy wrought havoc on the USSR and its ability to sustain its empire, in large part simply because the country's leadership had failed to be adequately flexible in its plans. And the book spoke exactly to that point. True strategic planning has to take into account unforeseen changes <clears throat> Even the best detailed plans are useless if the assumptions on which they are based, explicitly or implicitly, are rendered false by circumstances outside one's own control. 
What was needed was an approach that could accommodate such changes. So Putin's appreciation for planning under conditions of uncertainty undoubtedly grew after the collapse of the Soviet Union, not least as a result of his own experience in helping to manage the economy in the city of St. Petersburg in the 1990s in that tumultuous and unpredictable period, when it seemed nothing could be taken for granted and any one of a number of sudden and unexpected changes could bring catastrophe. So there is, of course, a dilemma here in the kind of planning under uncertainty. To be most easily understood and capable of smooth implementation, a plan has to be detailed, clear, and precise. The more it reflects an image of the future, the more vulnerable it is to unexpected changes in the external circumstances. So the answer, according to King and Cleland, uh, and later Putin, is that true strategic planning would not aim to produce a single simple plan, but rather establish a hierarchical system of interrelated subplans, stay with me here, it gets better, that address different dimensions of the problems being faced. The system starts with the very top by defining the most enduring objectives and moves downward to more and more detailed time-specific tasks. It begins by de defining the organization's mission and then sets objectives, broad and timeless statements, um, and that, uh, that are to be stated as specifically and as quantitatively as possible. And finally, investment programs and projects at the lower levels of the plan. Now, the responsibility for managing the various levels of plans falls to different levels of the organizational hierarchy. The most important division in this respect is that between the very highest level, the strategic planner, and the so-called operational managers. The strategic planner defines the mission of the organization, formulates its objectives. He ensures that the objectives, goals, and programs and projects are consistent with the overall mission and serve to fulfill it. There, are, there is only one strategic planner in the corporation, and it is the CEO. Now, as president of Russia, Putin has not only assumed the role of strategic planner, but he has followed the logical order of planning, as laid out by King and Cleland, remarkably closely. On the eve of his assumption of office, as acting president January, uh, when he became acting president on January 1, 2000, a couple of days before that, he issued, in effect, his mission statement. It was called Russia at the Turn of the Millennium, which, in retrospect, is a quite a visionary document, produced with the assistance of his newly established Center for Strategic Reform. Now, the Center for Strategic Reform was initially headed by the future Minister of Ec Economic Development and Trade, German Greff, who just recently stepped down to take over Sberbank, the lar largest bank in Russia. So in this so-called Millennium Statement, Putin pledged first, and this point is really essential, what the Russians they pledged first to give Russians what they long for, quote, stability, certainty, and the possibility of planning for the future, their own and that of their children, not one month at a time, but for years and decades. He identified the long-term objective of restoring Russia's status as a great power and the well-being of its people, and also for the first time set up time-specific goals, one time-specific goal of, of bringing Russia's per capita gross domestic product to the level of Portugal by the year 2015. Now, he later adjusted that uh, goal and, in fact, made it to double the GDP of Russia by the year 2010, which, uh, quite unexpectedly, it looks like Russia is going to meet. Um, <clears throat> and programs and projects have been followed in abundance, most notably the four called so national projects, which Dmitry Medvedev has had the responsibility for leading for the last four years in agriculture, housing, education, and health care. 
Those were articulated in 2004. So, where does politics fit into all this? Well, one of the major themes of Putin's Millennium Statement was the need for unity and cohesion in Russian society if the nation's destiny was to be fulfilled and its objectives met. In Putin's scheme, parties and electoral politics play a specific role in this regard, and it's not the same one they play here. Political parties must serve the objective of unity and stability, something they cannot do if they primarily represent competing policies and platforms. Rather, the purpose of political parties becomes to mold a diverse electorate into a unified body of support for his policy. So this suggests a reason as to why three other parties, in addition to United Russia, were allowed to make it into the Duma in December of last year. The Kremlin's democracy managers pragmatically understand that one party cannot appeal to all segments of the Russian electorate. So they have Vladimir Zhirinovsky's misnamed Liberal Democratic Party, which won 8.1% of the vote. That appeals to the most xenophobic and national, nationalist constituencies in Russia. While the Communists and the Just Russia Party, also, which received 11.6% and 7.7%, they appeal to poor and older voters. And at the staged event at which four party leaders announced their support for Medvedev's candidacy in December and urged, um, they announced their support for Medvedev's candidacy and they urged Putin to do the same. Putin identified a similar role for the approved opposition parties in the presidential election by saying, quote, the fact that this proposal comes from representatives of four parties that unquestionably are based on the most different strata of Russian society and represent the interests of various groups of the population of Russia, all that tells us that we have together a chance to form a stable regime in the Russian Federation after the March 2008 presidential election. Nonetheless, it is the most reliable guarantee, the most reliable guarantee of unity is the thoroughly dominant role of a single party, aptly named United Russia, which received 64.2% of the vote in December of 2007. Now, because the plan changes, it's essential to have a vehicle to educate and mobilize, and that is United Russia's role. Therefore, is to publicize the appropriate level of the plan and mobilize support for it. Now, some around Putin believe that United Russia must play this role as a leading party in Russia for decades, giving it a status similar to that of the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan last century or the Institutional Revolutionary Party of Mexico. Now, this vision accords very closely with that of the Kremlin's Karl Rove, the chief of, uh, their chief political strategist, Vladislav Surkov, uh, who said at a meeting in February 2006 of United Russia that your job is not just to win the parliamentary election in December of 2007. Your job, comrades, is to rule Russia for several decades. Um, now, this vision of United Russia ruling for several decades in order to oversee the nation's revival, I think it reflects the mentality of today's Russian elite. Most of them were born in the 1950s, 1960s, baby boomers, some generation Xers. And it's natural for them, I think, to view their leadership taking Russia to 2020, even 2030. In their view, the task of maintaining continuity of policy, and specifically of the individuals who are responsible for shaping that policy, is not something that can be left to democratic politics. True to the, with a small d, true to the roots of his notion of strategic planning, Putin is orchestrating the election of someone to succeed him 
and strategic planner, CEO of Russia, Inc. In fact, in a statement concerning the parliamentary elections that was quite remarkable in its frankness in this regard, Central Election Commission Chairman Vladimir Churov said on Russian TV that Russia has formed a, quote, corporate state, and, quote, we have a state corporation and we are electing the top management of our state corporation. That was his view of, that's the view of the electoral commissioner. The crux of Russia's domestic political dilemma now, or as it looked a couple of months ago, is that according to the statutes of Russia, Inc., the constitution approved in December of 1993, the current CEO, Putin, must step down after eight years, despite the fact he's young, vigorous, extremely popular, full of ideas. As of now, it appears that Putin is attempting to resolve the dilemma by entrusting the office of president to his longtime protege, Dmitry Medvedev, while he himself may assume the post of prime minister. Now, a recent public opinion poll suggests Russian society is quite prepared to accept Medvedev as chief executive and prefers stability over the risk of reconfiguring the Russian political system. Perhaps most significantly, 80% of those polled expect Medvedev to continue to implement Putin's plan, as I said earlier. Whether or not Putin intends to relinquish his role to Medvedev as strategic planner remains uncertain. For now, I think Mr. Putin is keeping all of his options open, likely waiting to see how in circumstances play out, and perhaps to judge whether Medvedev is capable not merely of implementing the plan, but of independently adapting it to changing circumstances the quality that distinguishes a real strategic planner. So what, where does the outside world fit in all of this? Okay. Stability has been Mr. Putin's first priority. Yet as demonstrated in the Soviet Union in the 1980s and Russia in the 1990s, the source of greatest uncertainty lies in the external environment. From the 1997 Asian financial crisis that catalyzed Russia's default a year later, to the support of international terrorist networks for the opposition in the Chechen war, to the perception of the West's role in promoting color revolutions in the former Soviet Union, Putin could confirm that Russia is dangerously vulnerable to what King and Cleland call uncontrollable elements in the outside environment. Putin's conviction that a nation can make meaningful plans for the future only to the extent that it has control over its own fate bears on his repeated references to a particular definition of the notion of sovereignty, extremely important in his worldview. For him, and I think for most Russian elites, sovereignty means being able to shape one's own destiny independently. It is often defined in negative terms in Russia now. Let no one else determine Russian's fate. That is for Russians. And Putin and his colleagues believe that Russia essentially lost its sovereignty in the late 1980s and 1990s under Mikhail Gorbachev and Boris Yeltsin. Now, Russia's greatest weakness when Mr. Putin took over was its financial state and its removal was a precondition for dealing with the other weaknesses. When Putin assumed the post of prime minister in August of 1999, Russia was effectively bankrupt. It was in receivership. The nation owed $16.6 .6 billion to the IMF. It had less than $9 billion in foreign currency reserves at that time. Prospects for easily turning around the situation seemed rather dim. In fact, I recall in 1999, my stock talk about Russia was called the weak man of Eurasia, or the sick man of Eurasia. I haven't given that talk for a while. <clears throat> what would eventually change the situation was, of course, the boom in world oil prices. Putin initially had benefited from a rebound in oil prices as he became prime minister in 1999, 
and it continued throughout his rule with some ups and downs in the early, early part of the century. Now, such uncertainty over Russia's oil wealth dictated a very conservative policy of financial management. The Stabilization Fund was created in January of 2004 to absorb the excess profits of the oil companies and redirect them to paying off the country's debt. The subsequent surge in oil prices then greatly accelerated Russia's capacity to restore its financial sovereignty, faster than anybody in the world expected. On January 31, 2005, Russia paid off the entire balance of its debt to the IMF, three and a half years ahead of schedule. In the summer of 2006, it paid off the remaining $23 billion of debt owed to the Paris Club creditors, even paying a $1 billion surcharge for paying it off early. So restoring financial sovereignty went hand-in-hand with Russia's perception of restoring its international political sovereignty. And it's not a coincidence, in my view, that the controversial term sovereign democracy, which entered the Russian political lexicon in 2005-2006, at the same time its financial dependence on the West was removed. The Kremlin's newfound sovereignty was boosted at the time by the downturn in the momentum of regional color revolutions. Remember, Georgia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, <clears throat> in which democracy so-called managers in other states in the former Soviet Union were not able to uh, control the outcomes of their elections. That changed uh, beginning in the second half of 2005. And the Kremlin, of course, viewed Western-supported non-governmental organizations in Georgia, Ukraine, and Russia itself as threats to regional stability and thus to the very sovereignty of the Russian Federation. So, having regained financial independence, Russia now faces the question of how to deal with the changes that took place in the international environment at the time of its financial weakness uh, that began in the late 1980s. And this is a real, this is, a, I think, at the crux of why we have a lot of difficult issues with the Russians right now, and that Russia regards many elements of the international system that evolved in that period of weakness as somewhat illegitimate. That is most evident in a range of security issues, including Kosovo, the role of NATO, missile defense, Conventional Armed Forces Treaty in Europe and others, where the United States, uh, often with the accusation of unilateralism coming from the Russians, uh, and the West are viewed as having taken undue advantage of Russia during a time of weakness. Now, with every action that Russia takes to defy the existing order, there are stronger calls from the Western country to exclude Russia further from the international system. In return, Russian rhetoric is heated up. And we all know that uh, a little less than a year ago, Mr. Putin alarmed many in the West with his sharp criticism of U.S. foreign policy in a speech he gave in February of 2007 at the Munich uh, Security Conference, the Verkunda Security Conference. And at the core of Putin's frustration and anger is his view that the United States dangerously intervening in the sovereign affairs of others. Quote, the United States has overstepped its national borders in every way. This is visible in the economic, political, cultural, and educational policies it policies it imposes on other nations, unquote. Now, this speech and subsequent other remarks by Putin and some of his other Kremlin leaders in 2007 have sparked a furor in Western policy circles and endless commentary about an alleged new Cold War. It seems that Russia and the West are somewhat of an impasse right now. Okay, my last few minutes, I will try to suggest a way we can get out of this impasse. Maybe a way to break through this impasse is to acknowledge Russia's quest for stability and to recognize that its core concern is the risks to stability presented by the interdependent global economy. 
The growing mismatch between economic power and the architecture of international economic relations has become a very popular theme for Mr. Putin. In that very same Munich speech, he said this, long quote, fasten your seatbelts. The combined GDP measured in purchasing power parity of countries such as India and China is already greater than that of the United States. And a similar calculation of the GDP of the so-called BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, supposes <coughs> surpasses the cumulative GDP of the, of the European Union. And according to experts, this gap will increase, only increase in the future. There is no reason to believe, there is no reason to doubt, excuse me, that the economic potential of the new centers of global economic power, economic growth, will inevitably, inevitably be converted into political influence and will strengthen multipolarity. Now, when I read that, that Munich speech, I thought that was the most important line in the speech. So Russia today finds itself regaining economic strength faster than anyone inside or outside of the Kremlin expected. In less than 10 years, Russia has emerged from bankruptcy to, in fact, be one of the largest creditors of U.S. debt. Guess what? Nobody in the world predicted that. Not even close. It's been a virtual macroeconomic revolution in Russia that's taken place. Now the ninth largest economy in the world, according to uh, purchasing power parity GDP estimates, Russia has set itself the goal of advancing to fifth place by the year 2020. By that time, Moscow projects itself to be one of the world's top five financial centers after New York, London, Tokyo, Hong Kong. To many skeptics in the Washington policy community, this sounds like a fairy tale. And it may sound like a fairy tale to you today. Yet much in interviews, interviews and discussions I've had with many in the Russian and international investment banking community and large multinational companies, people are taking these projections fairly seriously as a uh, possible outcome in the next 10 years or so. And it's in the context of rapid recovery and the perception of a lack of voice in reforming the international order for the last 20 years that the campaign message taken from the United Russia 2007 campaign brochure entitled Putin's Plan, a Victory for Russia, I think should be interpreted. The campaign brochure says, sorry to bring it today because it's, well, you've seen campaign brochures. Uh, this victory in the competitive battle of leading world powers the result of this victory will be a dignified place for Russia in the international division of labor and dis distribution of assets. The victory of Russia is a new architecture of the world in which our country can influence global politics for the benefit of security and the well-being of its citizens. So in Putin's view, it's not just Russia's reversal of fortune that calls for a new architecture. Russia's resurgence is just a piece, albeit a significant one in his mind, of a changing global economic balance of power, or to put it in economic terms, a massive wealth transfer. So far, the principal beneficiaries have been the major oil exporters and large emerging, emerging market economies. Russia fits prominently into both of those categories. I'm going to bring this to a, bring this to a close. The Russians, there's an interesting story uh, in the article about the Russian nomination of a alternative candidate to head the International Monetary Fund last summer, which I think actually says a lot about how Russia may be able to play a constructive role uh, on institutions of global governance in the economy. On institutions of security, and even more so on those of human rights and democracy, norms of democracy, it's a much more complicated picture. But let me conclude by saying this. 
the Russians have learned that the vagaries of a modern global economy can pose as great a threat to a nation's existence as do military threats. This is especially appropriate at this point in time where, in fact, a potential global economic crisis seems to be stemming from us. The Soviet Union survived World War II, but it could not survive a collapse of world oil prices in the 1980s. During Putin's tenure, therefore, the Russians have acted to insulate themselves better, making the economy and society, in their view, and this is a very, there's a lot of argument about this, but in their view, as economy and society as robust as possible to external shocks. But increasingly, however, Russia has come to realize that a purely defensive and inward-oriented approach is not enough. Russia is inextricably linked to the international economy, and if its growth is to continue, the trend cannot be reversed. Russia today is more integrated into the world economy than Russia ever has been in its history. Now, a lot of people I hear say in Washington and elsewhere is that the Russians are not interested in integration. No, I believe that is not true. They are absolutely interested in integration, but they are not interested in integration on the terms at which they felt they were being offered it back in the 1990s when they were in a very weak position. But there's an increasing appreciation that for, among the Russians that they have to play an active role in promoting global stability. And this realization fuels many of Mr. Putin's critical comments about the U.S. role in world affairs. Putin believes that the United States is simply not capable on its own of keeping the global system stable. Moreover, if a crisis does appear, the current unipolar system will inevitably result in an attempt by the dominant nation to secure its own interests first, even at the expense of others. That's what I think is inside Vladimir Putin's head and many of his colleagues in the Russian elite. Now, Putin's plan may or may not endure. This is really dependent upon the, the future political role of Mr. Putin himself. Whatever a Russian politician assumes the role of strategic planner, however, the goals of long-term stability and predictability will endure because the Russians want their people, their children to live better and their country to endure as a major power in the world. External events combined with governmental incompetence have twice conspired to thwart this goal in the 20th century, nearly 100 years ago with World War I and then 20 years ago with the collapse of oil prices. I think that Mr. Putin and his colleagues will continue to seek to minimize the risk of major internal and external shocks disrupting Russia's stable growth path. So my takeaway for U.S. policy, very broadly construed, and we can talk about lots of the issues that are currently on the table today, is that Russia is a mildly revisionist power. It is not a revolutionary power. It is, un it is definitely part of the global capitalist system, and they want to be rich, and they want to be powerful, and they don't want to upset the system. But they want to ensure that their voice is heard and respected, and while they want to be a partner, they're going to be, at times, a very difficult partner. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andy. Uh, a lot of food for thought, and the uh, a lot. Of, I think what he said surprises a lot of us as to the conditions there. Okay, well, traditionally here with our questions, in order to afford uh, the people the biggest opportunity to ask them, we take three questions at a time, and uh, uh, so uh, anybody at this table here? Okay, there. Thank you. So the question is. Um, 
one of the risks for Russia is that Medvedev, uh, I can't say names, Medvedev, my wife can say what do you learn how to say that guy? Okay. Uh, his personality traits will manifest themselves a year out, and he and Putin get crosswise and makes it unstable. Or the oil price growth rate, because the, you know, like all the rest of us, our budgets get built around the, the uh, growth in revenue. And uh, you mentioned this stabilization fund. All of these, all three of these issues relate to the likelihood of Russian stability because they suffer from Dutch disease in a big way. Uh, next question, you? Oh, yeah, I was going to ask about given that you know the Bush administration sent the deputy, you mentioned the stabilization fund, sent the deputy secretary of treasury to Russia a few months ago asking them to invest more of it in the United States. Uh, Russian aircraft are right now flying war material into Iraq and Afghanistan and a lot of other things that are going on uh, behind the scenes, do you feel like there's a growing cognitive dissonance or clash between the business community in this country and uh, the policy elites in D.C. over our Russian policy? What, one more question. Mark? Where does Russia stand with regard to human rights? <laughs> human, ri human rights of whom? Um, okay, let me, uh, <clears throat> excellent, excellent questions. Um, you know, at, today as we sit here, or stand here, it's not clear what the relationship is going to be between Mr. Medvedev and Mr. Putin. Uh, you know, March 2nd, we know there's the election. We know that Mr. Medvedev is going to win. We know that, we know that March 2nd, there'll be a presidential election. We know that Mr. Medvedev will win. Um, he has proposed, and apparently Putin has uh, agreed in principle, to become prime minister. Uh, that may or may not happen. Here, are th there are four scenarios that I see for the, the political relationship moving forward uh, and Mr. Putin's role in the future. Okay, one possibility is simply that Mr. Putin does not become prime minister um, and that he's agreed to become prime minister and the proposal was made as a means to bolster Mr. Medvedev's presidential candidacy because of the great popularity of Mr. Putin. Presidential ra ratings that have been running you know, from 70 to 80 percent for most of the time that he's been, been in power. Um, that's one possibility. And then Mr. Putin does something else. Uh, it may or may not be politi politi politically related. But he's clearly not planning to be come, come, come back as president. The second possibility is that he does become prime minister, but he's doing it so to help Mr. Medvedev consolidate power. Now, one of the, I was a bit surprised when he selected Mr. Medvedev because of all the close people in Mr. Putin's entourage, Mr. Medvedev is the only one that does not have a background in the intelligence services, as far as we know, or as far as I know. Um, everybody else that's a close colleague in, in his, uh, in his uh, entourage uh, comes out of the intelligence services. Medvedev does not. He's a, like as we know, he's a lawyer, trained in St. Petersburg State University, very close to the former mayor of St. Petersburg, Anatoly Sobchak, with whom Mr. Putin worked with in the 1990s, who was a, one of the leaders of the Russian democratic movement. Um, Medvedev probably does not have the, does not have the ties. If, in this variant, Putin would be playing this role because he 
Putin can help Medvedev control the so-called Siloviki, the intelligence services, security services folks, military, in the Russian government. In other words, some of the people that may not be so happy about Mr. Medvedev becoming the next president. That's a possibility. But Mr. Putin would be doing that with an eye to stepping down you know, in the future and not coming back as president and remaining strategic planner of Russia. Third variant is that uh, he is coming on as prime minister and that he is essentially, that Mr. Medvedev is keeping the seat warm as president and Mr. Putin plans to come back as president either in 2012 when he constitutionally could or earlier if Mr. Medvedev were to step down. A fourth variant is that Mr. Putin is becoming prime minister and the goal will be to actually reconfigure the political system in the Russian Federation to make it a, to move power, move authority and power from the office of the president, because this is a super presidential system that he inherited with the Yeltsin's constitution, and that all the measures that Putin has taken over the last seven or eight years have made it a uh, even hyper presidential system. Uh, but to move real political authority over into the office of the prime minister and perhaps also more power into the Duma with the, the party of United Russia. Um, Again, as I, I said on the, my talk, I think right now Mr. Putin is keeping all of his options open. He's a, he's a strategic thinker and a tactical operator, and I think he may be waiting to see how Mr. Medvedev uh, develops. I would not underestimate Mr. Medvedev. Let's remind everybody that we all under, underestimated Mr. Putin eight years ago. Uh, he was brought to power, I think, by some people, Mr. Berezovsky, Mr. Voloshin, others in Yeltsin's family, who felt that... Uh, uh, I think they, they could control him. They found out that was not the case and that he was actually quite an independent actor. Um, I would not underestimate the capacity of Mr. Putin um, nominating Mr. Medvedev uh, to let Mr. Medvedev ultimately run, run the show. Um, but we'll have to wait and see as to what, what happens. But that's, I know that's, not, that's not the conventional wisdom, but I just put that out there for you. You know, as far as... Um, uh, oil, oil growth rate. Let me just say this, uh, make this one point about that. Um, I just did a report uh, that was published by CSIS called Alternative Futures of Russia to the Year 2017. And um, it's available on the CSIS website for the moderate price of 1895 uh, <laughs> It uh, was published in December, actually it's in debate November, November 2007. And we look at the key drivers of Russian future, Russia's future. There's one section that describes the energy and the economy. Another section just describes the political system, political structure. Another section that looks at health and demographics. And another section that looks at society. Um, when I look at Russia's future, the most important driver of Russia's future, and I would argue the most important driver of Russia's past for the last 35 years since the first oil crisis back in 1973 has been the price of oil. And you can correlate the, a high price of oil with a less pluralistic, um, less open political system with less incentive for structural economic reform uh, and with a more assertive foreign policy. That would be Brezhnev and Putin, especially Putin in the last four or five years. It would distinguish between the first part of Mr. Putin's, uh, first three years of Mr. Putin's term and the last four or five years to some extent. And low oil price uh, is fairly closely correlated with a more open, a more pluralistic, a more reformist political system, more incentive for structural economic reform, and a more accommodating uh, foreign policy. That's Gorbachev and Yeltsin. 
So since we're going to be living in a hydrocarbon economy for at least the next 10 years, um, I still think that'll be the most important driver of Russia's future. But a second very important driver in looking at Russia's future is the nature of the political system itself. And that is Russia, historically, and has now reverted to once again, after a brief episode in the 1990s of something slightly different, in a highly centralized political authority and highly personalized political power. I think there's probably no other country in the world that we could sit here and name as many leaders of as we could with Russia. Because, well, there have been a lot of really colorful leaders, but they're also extremely powerful in the context of their political system. And that's a distinguishing feature of Russia going back to Ivan the, Ivan the Terrible, um, you know, five, five, 500, 500 years ago. So the character of who is leader, strategic planner, matters a lot. Now, when I go back to Mr. Medvedev, sorry, long answer to this question, but I think it's important. Some things I like about Medvedev. One, he's young. He's 42. Uh, he has virtually no professional experience in the context of the Soviet Union. Okay? Two, as I mentioned before, he does not come from the intelligence services. Three, uh, while I don't want to, you know, look at this point with rose-colored glasses, if we look at what he's said and what he's done over his career, he looks like somewhat more liberal than others around Mr. 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 Putin. So I think that Mr. Medvedev was the, the best possible choice of those that were available, uh, but we'll have to see what happens. Um, cognitive dissonance. Is there cognitive dissonance in Washington about Russia? You bet. It's huge. And what's been st striking to me and worrisome to me to see over the course of the last particularly five years, and I would mark the Yukos affair as a watershed event, is the increasing difference. I should also say that I, I lived in, in Moscow from, ran the Carnegie Moscow Center from uh, uh, August of 19, 2003 to the end of 2005. So I was kind of watching how the conversation in Washington went and also living in the Russian reality at the time. And also becoming very close with you know, many people in the expat community. Whenever I visited Russia in the past, I would always you know, visit Russian friends. And I would hang out with them mostly. I didn't go to Russia to you know, hang out with guys like me. Um, <clears throat> but when I was living there, since my kids were in school and you know, when you're living as an expat, you become very close to your ex 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 expat friends. I met a lot of people that have been working, living, and doing business with Russia for 10 to 15 years. And they definitely gave me kind of a different perspective on, on Russia and Hodorkovsky and, and a lot of things. Um, and the differences in how the financial and business community, broadly, broadly speaking, views Russia as opposed to uh, the policy community in Washington and even more so those that are in the, in the democracy promotion and human, human rights business, you know, it's almost like they're talking about two different countries. It's a tale of two cities. Uh, so cognitive dissonance is big. Uh, I've heard of no evidence, by the way, of uh, the Russia's, Russians' uh, aircraft trans transferring materiel uh, recently to uh, Afghan um, opposition or, or to Iraqi. But anyway, human rights, it's not a pretty picture. Russia doesn't rate that high on, uh, on human rights observance, and uh, uh, that, has not, that has not improved uh, under Mr. Putin, although I would be careful about asserting how much things have worsened. And I think there's a lot of obfuscation ab about this. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with the Chechen war, which is pretty much over. 
there's still some partisan you know, battles going on, but from, from the standpoint of calling it a war, I think that is incorrect. Were there massive human rights violations in Chechnya, and are they still going on to a lesser extent? Yes, absolutely. Unjustifiable, unforgivable. Of course, were the Chechen opposition undertaking brutal violations of human rights against the Russian military there? Absolutely. It's war. It's not pretty. Um, as far as the issue of you know, how democratic Russia is, I think, to my view, that there's, you, can, you cannot argue with the fact that democratic institutions have weakened over the course of the eight years that Vladimir Putin has been in power, but I'd be very reluctant to exaggerate just how democratic Russia was back in the 1990s. And one issue that's received a lot of uh, play uh, recently has been murders of journalists. Um, and, you know, Russia's most courageous, brilliant uh, journalist Anna Politkovskaya was shot in the back of the head in a contract killing in October of 2006. It was brutal. And, of course, we had the very, very bizarre case of uh, the Polonia murder of Alexander Litvinenko um, and some other fairly high-profile journalist killings, including, of course, Paul Hlebnikov, the editor of Russia, For Russia Forbes, that took place in the summer of 2004. Well, those are all really uh, terrible things. But one fact, the amount, the number of journalist murders in Russia is about half under Mr. Putin as to what it was under Mr. Yeltsin. And the reasons for, the reasons for the journalist murders are principally the same as they were then. They're either people that were doing investigative journalism in Russia is a very dangerous business. Um, and they're either doing investigative journalism on something to do with Chechnya and the Northern Caucasus or they're doing investigations into organized crime. Um, okay, sorry to go on so long. Next three. Next three questions. Uh, we have many good examples of one-party rule uh, improving society and the economies of countries. Uh, but after a few decades, the common experience seems to be that without a loyal opposition to throw the rascals out from time to time, one-party rule becomes kleptocracy. How will Russia avoid a repeat of that kleptocracy that it experienced before? Uh, we had started a uh, program to dismantle Soviet nuclear weapons and uh, <clears throat> to help subsidize that process because the Soviet Union uh, uh, left the Russia with a lot of uh, weapons and not a lot of money to uh, or motivation to dismantle it. I'd like to know what's happening with that program under uh, Putin, and uh, do you see much going on with the uh, rearming of the uh, Russian uh, armed forces? Okay. Uh, Would you expect uh, Russia to start re-expanding itself? Well, Belarus uh, probably would be an example, and I would suspect some Central Asian republics would be very interested in uh, getting back into the Russian domain. What do you think about that? Okay, Mel, should I roll? Uh, great questions. One-party rule, growing kleptocracy. Well, Russia's already one of the most kleptocratic governments in the world, but... Uh, yeah, we would expect that uh, the, these trends to, to worsen. 
mean, Russia was an extremely corrupt and kleptocratic government in the 1990s under Mr. Yeltsin. The estimates of corruption uh, today uh, by some organizations that have carried out studies are higher, but I think a fair amount of this can be explained by the fact that Russia is a lot richer than it was, and so there's more to steal. Um, now, there are all kinds of allegations out there about Mr. Putin himself and those closer, close around him. Um, well, suffice to say, that's not a topic I'd want to do a lot of research on. Uh, <laughs> could be dangerous. Um, but an interesting thing is happening in Russia over the last, the last eight years, and that is, cause this, I think this gets, gets to your, your point in that as countries typically become more prosperous, over time uh, they typically become more pluralistic and even democratic. And we've seen that process happen with uh, some of the Asian tigers. We've seen that process happen in, in Latin America. And it's sort of one of the fundamental beliefs of modernization theory. And uh, Seymour Lip, uh, Martin Lipset. What we've seen in Russia is uh, actually disproving that right now, in that Russia has become a lot more prosperous in the last eight years. Incomes have grown by a factor of four, depending on how you measure it. Um, poverty level has been cut in half. To me, that's pretty much the explanation as to why Vladimir Putin is popular. Um, but Russia has become less democratic. Democratic institutions have, have weakened. And so, so far, Russia is not following along that, that paradigm. And I think a, that can be explained to a great extent um, as to what Russia's experience with democracy in the 1990s. And then unfortunately, 1991, 1992, Soviet Union collapsed. Russia uh, becomes more, much more democratic. It coincides with the impoverishment of the vast majority of the population. It coincides with the breakdown of state authority. It coincides with a civil war on their territory, which they effectively lost. Bomb bombing of the parliament building out there in October of 1993. I was there that day. Felt a bullet whiz by my head which I mistakenly told my wife about. Um, <clears throat> but the point is, is that, you know, Russians right now, their, their priority is to live better, get wealthy, uh, and it's not that they're fundamentally anti-democratic, I think. It's just that that's not a priority right now. And so as to whether Russia will follow, will kind of reverse the current trend uh, that we're seeing right now, I think it's a big question, and I'm kind of agnostic on the question right, right now, but it's a paradox as far as things go now. On the nuclear security and rearmament, um, you know, Sam Nunn is a chairman of our board. It's the Center for Strategic and National Studies in Washington. And I think the Nunn-Lugar program uh, to assist in the dismantlement of uh, many of the uh, Soviet, much of the Soviet nuclear arsenal, uh, and also to transfer some of, that, uh, some of those weapons from uh, Kazakhstan, Belarus, and Ukraine to Russia uh, and the other efforts that have been involved in to promote nuclear security in that program over the last 15 years or so, that's probably been the most successful example of U.S. assistance to Russia that is in their interests, in our interests, and in the interests of, the, interests of global, global security. Now, what's been happening in, in more, more recent years? Uh, several things. One, um, given the nature of the, the, the Russian government getting access to Russian nuclear facilities, uh, and strategic, strategic things is getting a little more complicated. There's still a great deal of cooperation that goes, goes on that's quite remarkable. Uh, in fact, 
you know, if you look, kind of look at the headlines of, the, of where, where the U.S. U.S. Russian relationship is, you would say, oh, new, we're on the verge of a new Cold War. Still, there's far more cooperation below the below the surface, which is still emerging, but it's getting more difficult, given the political environment in Russia, also given the fact, also given the, the political environment on Capitol Hill, uh, where making the argument that we should be paying for Russia's nuclear security when, in fact, Russia's gross domestic product in real dollar terms has grown by a factor of six in the last eight years. Factor of six. 1999, the GDP was $200 billion. Today, it's $1.2 trillion plus. That's getting a harder argument to make. Um, on rearmament, the, uh, I think still the, Rus the Russians have to rely more on their nuclear deterrent because their conventional armed forces deteriorated to such an extent uh, in the 1990s and even to, even to this day, uh, that you know it was perfectly evident in how they were conducting the Chechen war, especially the first one back in the 19 in the mid mid 1990s. Uh, certainly, with the growth of the economy that's taken place in the last eight years, growth in military spending has increased. But what's interesting to me is that it has not increased at a higher level per capita GDP. At least now, these are hard things to measure, and <laughs> the Russians are good at hiding things. Um, it's hard. To, it's hard to measure, but actually, there is a lot more transparency today about about the Russian budget uh, than there was in the Soviet period, for sure. But that rate of GDP is still about about three about three percent, um, and that is something I would watch for. If the the rate of GDP that they're allocating for military military expenditures were to to go up to let's say five percent, that'd be quite considerable. Uh, and but it would come at the expense of, you know, rebuilding the infrastructure of the country. Rebuilding the health system, uh, social welfare expenses, etc. So that would be a pretty important political decision for them to make. And also, the the cost of them building, the cost of their building weapons has increased mightily. Part of that's simply the increased cost in steel and other other nat natural resources. Um, but you know, so far, I would say that you know, Russia militarily remains, you know, certainly compared to its Soviet status, uh, but somewhat weak given the size of its the size of its its, its, its economy. It does not have a tremendous uh, capacity to project power, so I'm a little more uh, relaxed about that, at least at least for the moment. Russian expansion. Um, you know, it's a great question. Uh, like most questions, uh, the real answer is I don't know. Um, but let me fake it. I think you know one thing that's been <laughs> extraordinary to me has been the the rapidity and the magnitude of Russia's ec economic recovery, which again, uh, no one anywhere in the world predicted. Um, just like virtually nobody predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union, just like virtually nobody kind of predicted and understood what was going to happen to Russia in the 1990s. I mean, my profession, we have a terrible track record in predicting Russia. So go read my report on Russia 2017. Um, <laughs> But the it's, the it's the magnitude and the speed of the recovery, which I think is, it's been difficult even for the, I, I don't think there's necessarily, there's, I don't think, you know, someone, Putin, and is the strategic planner or anyone, has a, uh, a plan as to where this is going to go. And uh, uh, certainly you're right that uh, reunification with Belarus is the most likely. Um, that will probably happen. Uh, Belarus has the weakest national identity of any of the post-Soviet post states. Uh, the biggest, I think, obstacle that right now is the uh, the leader of Belarus, Mr. Lukashenko. Um, 
described by Secretary Rice as the last di dictator in Europe, although it looks like we have a few more of them. depends on where you put Europe's boundaries at. Um, how far that will go, it's, 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 it's hard, hard to say. Uh, you know, I think, you know, in the case of, I think, Ukraine, Ukraine really is the linchpin there. Uh, and I think Ukraine is, is gone, gone forever for, for Russia. Um, not as, well, not as much as others. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, Georgia also, uh, very hard to see coming back. I think the states of uh, Central Asia, and I would also add Azerbaijan, the uh, hydrocarbon-rich country in the, uh, in the southern Caucasus. Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, I put Uzbekistan in this, this category, although Uzbekistan today is, is closer to Russia than it was you know, several years ago. I think it's, it's, they find their interest in trying to play off um, in the state, particularly Kazakhstan. And Mr. Nazarbayev does this brilliantly. He plays off Russia. China, the U.S., and Europe to promote, uh, leverage Kazakh independence. And I think that's the interest of the Uzbeks as well, although after the Andashan uprising in, in May of 2005 and, you know, the, the breakdown in, in Uzbek-U.S. relations that took place uh, that year, that's still longer term, I think, where Uzbekistan kind of, kind of wants to be. They want to leverage their own independence. Um, and Azerbaijan, the, uh, uh, the, same, the same way. I mean, they're in a very delicate position between Russia, Iran. Uh, so it's, it's important for uh, Mr. Aliyev or whoever's in power in Baku to, I think, to try to kind of play off others to promote their in, in, independence. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of skeptical about a, a broader reunification of the, uh, of course, obviously the, the Baltic states are uh, gone, gone, gone. Never were part of the Soviet Union, technically. Um, I'm skeptical about that, but you know, I maintain uh, an open mind because, you know, imagine, um, you know, imagine 10, 15 years of, of uh, Russian economic, economic growth, of the magnitude we've seen for the last, the last 10 years, you know, and at a nominal dollar GDP, this is a fun fact, um, unless you don't like Russia, it's not a fun fact. Um, the nominal dollar GDP has grown at the rate of 25% per year, 25% per year. Now, it's very uh, difficult for them to be able to maintain that pace. Uh, it has to do with real economic growth plus uh, appreciation of the, of the ruble. And I would continue to buy the ruble for quite a while now. But it won't be that likely that, uh, that high. But, you know, what Russia is pretty much dialed into being a $2 trillion economy by the year 2010. Um, their goals by the year 2020 in the new report that uh, also done by the Center for Strategic Research is to be a $5 trillion economy by 2020 and to be the largest economy in Europe. That's achievable. That would require 15% annual um, nominal dollar GDP growth rates. That's uh, it's not out of, out of the ordinary. And, you know, so much depends on where the oil price is. And you know, it's, well, really what it depends on is what kind of revenues are coming into the Russian economy from uh, hydrocarbons. And so it's a factor of two things, the oil price and production levels. And production levels then is another another, another question that um, there's reason to be seriously concerned about whether Russia is going to be able to uh, maintain, if not grow, its current oil and gas production because uh, they haven't made uh, investments, I think, in adequate time to, to assure that. Well, our time is up. The meeting is officially adjourned, but I want to say this. Today you saw about the most perfect reason for, for being a faithful attendant at this luncheon series. Look what we heard. We have, we have an unparalleled authority 
on a, uh, we had information on, on one of the most difficult subjects of all Russia, and we had everything we asked for. So let's give him another hand of applause. Now those who would... For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.